Hope you guys didn't mind a little bit of Christmas music early. <laughs> we can't resist. And Mike's not here to stop us, so we did that. Um, but anyway, uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Michelle McKeska. I'm an elder here at First Colony Christian Church, and Mike is not here. He's uh, preaching, let's see, preaching somewhere, preaching at a retreat. So um, he asked me a while back if I would be willing to kind of take a crack at this last passage, and I said, ooh. Um, <clears throat> okay, that's a, that's a tough one. But uh, sure, why not? We'll see if I can do this. Um, so for those of you who were here last week, uh, you are aware that the passage that we are going to talk about today is seen as, uh, unanimously from scholars, as not being there originally. This was not written by Mark. This was added later, about 100 years later. And it's still here. We still have it. Um, and so one of the things that I enjoy about us going through books of the Bible is that we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, no, we're not going to touch that. That's a little weird. We don't know what that is. One of the things that going through the book of the Bible uh, forces us to do is to treat everything and see what we can glean from it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark 16. We're going to start in verse 9, right after the brackets that say... Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage right here. All right. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. He went and told those who had been with him. She went, sorry. And they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, so you've seen the bit about snakes and the poison. We'll get there. Um, but first, we have to deal with uh, the nature of this text. So by its uh, very nature, this text is going to raise a couple of questions that don't normally get raised on Sunday morning. And for that very reason, I think this text is really important to study. And the question that this text raise, raises has to do with the very nature of our scriptures, the nature of our Bible. Um, so, some observations that we have here from this text. Uh, most scholars believe that the story was derived from Matthew and Luke. And if you are the astute uh, observer, then you will have picked up some of those pieces. 
We have the Great Commission in verses 15 and 16, right? He commands them to go out into all creation. Uh, the scribe here has made it a bit more universal. So he has said, go out to all creation. He's made it more of a universal command. Another portion that we have from Luke is the Emmaus Road story. Two people walking down the road and encountering Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, these two are not part of the eleven. And they don't recognize Jesus. They don't know that he is Jesus until he breaks bread. Very interesting part of the story for them to recognize Jesus since he's compared his bread to his body. And as soon as he breaks the bread, they realize who he is and Jesus is gone. So that is also drawn from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The other thing that is in here are these signs that Jesus says will accompany those who are with him, his followers. These signs include speaking in tongues, casting out demons, picking up serpents, drinking poison without being harmed, and lastly, healing the sick. Again, these are probably drawn from the book of Acts, and we'll get there. Mike promised I would speak about snakes. I will not disappoint. (laughs) Uh, But again, uh, with this text, uh, one of the things that we need to ask is, why is it here? And what is the very nature of our Bible? Uh, Just a little bit of background on me. I am a teacher. I'm a high school teacher at uh, Houston Christian. I teach Bible specifically. So I teach New Testament to juniors in high school. And I teach apologetics to seniors in high school. Both of these classes, uh, we deal with this question. In fact, I consider it part of my responsibility as a teacher to make sure they understand the nature of the scriptures. It's one thing to be able to memorize it, to be able to uh, study it, but before we even get there, I want them to understand what the purpose of scripture is, what it is in its very nature. And the way that I usually get them to start thinking about this is I ask them a question. I ask them, what does the word Bible mean? What is the actual word? We say it's the Holy Bible. What does the word Bible mean? Typically met with blank stares. That's okay. (laughs) If you know Spanish, I will give you a hint. Anybody know what biblioteca is? I'm probably butchering that. Um, Biblioteca. Library. The Holy Bible means the Holy Collection or library. Okay? What's really confusing about calling this a library is that it's one book. Right? This doesn't look like a library. This doesn't look like a collection. This looks like one book that I just expect to open up and read it the exact same way in Genesis as I do Revelation. But that gets problematic. Right? If we walk into a library, we don't expect to find all the same kinds of stuff. There is nonfiction. There is philosophy. There is religion. There is fiction. There is poetry. And it turns out, when we open up our own Bible we find the same thing. There's poetry. There's narrative. There's theological narrative and historical narrative. There's apocalyptic. There's letters. There's prophecy. And it doesn't come with like a warning sign that says, by the way, this is this. Right? The libraries have nice little headings so you know what you're getting. Um, But this is all just here. (coughs) Leather bound for us. The Bible is beautifully beautifully and frustratingly complex. So, that starts getting them thinking. 
um, which they really don't like me making them do, but I do it anyway. So the Bible can't be flattened out into one thing, for starters. We really want to avoid doing that. The other significant thing about our text, uh, I like to highlight by comparing it to another sacred text of a different religion. I don't do this out of uh, to be mean-spirited or to say that our text is superior, uh, but to highlight another very, very key difference, um, another beautiful layer, if you will, of our text. So the next question is always about what words mean. This is how I get them thinking. Um, the next question that I typically will ask them is, does anybody know what the Quran means in Arabic? This again, met by blank stares, and also hostility. They're like, why is Ms. McKeska asking us about the Quran, right? You start to get suspicious, you know, that, that hostile um, stares. So the Quran in Arabic means recitation, to recite. It comes from the very first... Uh, words from the text, which is typical, it's how titles typically work, um, where the angel Gabriel comes to Muhammad and says, recite in the name of the Lord. Recite or read, depending on the translation. But the idea is, the very words of Allah were coming to Muhammad, right? and the thing that makes the Quran sacred in Islam is that those are the literal words of God. There is no human element all Muhammad is is an arm, writing it down. There is no interpretation. There is no dialogue. There's only monologue. I bring this up because the Bible is something very different from that. But a lot of times what I find is that my students think about the Bible or think that the Bible is like the Quran. Right? That somehow this came down, pre-leather bound out of heaven. Right? But once we start getting into the nuts and bolts and start digging in, we find it's a bit more complicated. What's very interesting about our scriptures um, is that we still call it sacred. We still say it's inspired. We say that the words of God are contained in it. But there's also other stuff in there. There's also dialogue. It seems that most of what we've received from scripture is God speaking through others, through human beings, through Moses, through the prophets, through Israel, and through the church. That that dialogue, that back and forth, is what's sacred. Now, this might seem at best inefficient, at worst open to miscommunication, right? Um, I can see my students typically start to get a little nervous. But I think this shouldn't surprise us when we start to deeply study who God is. If we go back to the beginning of the story, we find that God creates a beautiful world. An absolutely beautiful, flourishing world. And then he does something we don't expect. He creates humans, and he gives them choice. Seems like a bad idea. Right? And power. He says, I've created this garden, and now you take care of it. This seems to be his uh, modus operandi, if you will, his divine DNA. It seems to be in the nature of God to share. 
And God seems to like and enjoy letting his people tell the story. Like a father who enjoys hearing the story from his child. Um, we could go so far as to say that there is no Bible without God's people telling the story. Interesting thought. Like everything else, he wants his creation to be a part of it. So scripture is the sacred dialogue between his creation and creator. So where does this leave us with our text today? We can all agree, and I've already indicated, this is not from Mark. Mark did not write this text. But here's the key. That doesn't mean this text is not important, and it doesn't mean that this text is not scripture. Because we've just learned, right? This is one of God's people telling God's story. This is a sacred process. And the church, like the scriptures, are inspired by God. We are both filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? So this anonymous writer is carrying on the sacred dialogue. Not only this, one of the things that we mean by scripture being inspired is that it doesn't just have a word for people back then but that this word is still alive. It is living and active. And there is a word for us today. And the text we had this morning is no exception. So what is the message that Mark 16, 9 through 20 has for us? What sacred dialogue do we discover? Well, first we have to talk about the snakes. Then we'll get to the message. Okay, so... Mark 16, in verse 18, it says, They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. <coughs> Therefore, we must have a snake pit. Let snakes eat us, bite us, but don't worry, it won't kill us. The end, sermon done, close the Bible. No. Um, so, there are denominations out there uh, who... On Sunday mornings, their service does not look like our service. They have a pit of snakes that they pass around um, to people everywhere. No one's an exception. Kids, right? And the uh, logic, which again, they're getting from this verse, but they don't get this part, uh, that if you have enough faith, you will not be harmed. And if you get bitten, well... Unfortunately, you did not have enough faith, right? Now, there's good news if you get bitten. If you have more faith, right, then the poison will not hurt you. Don't go to the hospital. Don't try and get a, an anti-venom whatever shot. You need to spray this thing out, which means that a lot of people have died from this, from this text, Right? Uh, so I have an activity in my class that is one of my favorites. I call it McKeska's One Minute Sermon. And I will take a piece of scripture, just like one verse, and I will make up a crazy sermon um, with a just crazy application. And then I say, okay, prove me wrong. Now it's your turn. Show me what you got. Right at, up to this point, I have taught them some better interpretation methods, so they have some, some ways to do that. Um, but this is, by the way, this is one of the first ones that I use in my class. I say, okay, 
tell me why we don't have snake pits, right? Um, and so uh, one of the things that they discover, and I will point this out to you as well, is do we see a command in there? In verse 18. Any command language? The answer would be no, right? So seems like Jesus is saying, if you perchance happen to pass by and there is a snake, right, um, it will not harm you. He does not say, go therefore and pick up snakes. Now, that's not the command he gives. He says, go and preach the gospel. Right? And some of these are the signs that might accompany you. So they've already made a grievous disservice to the text by not recognizing that there's not a command in there. Okay. The other uh, reason or things that scholars have pointed out um, is that this is drawing from the book of Acts. So that in Acts 28, Paul is bitten by a snake. He just kind of shakes it off, you know, Paul being all the way he is. Um, so he shakes the snake off, and he doesn't get harmed. And they're all marveling at this. Okay. Um, another area, another place where this is mentioned is in Luke 10, when Jesus sends out the 72. One of the things he says is that you will have authority, this is very interesting, you will have authority over serpents and scorpions. Okay. I'm really glad that they didn't put scorpions in there. That would be like, they already have snakes. They don't need to add any more dangerous animals into their service. Um, but he says you will have authority over snakes and scorpions. Um, I think the gospel text gives us some much needed context. Um, so Jesus, his whole mission, his whole campaign, he says he's coming to bring the kingdom of God. And the idea is, where he is coming is hostile territory. Right now, we are in a battle with evil. And Jesus' kingdom has come to defeat it. One of the symbols of that evil is snakes. Where do we get that idea? If we go back to the garden, what creature tempts Adam and Eve? A snake, right? Um, so, for a long time, snakes in general have been viewed um, by the Jews of the first century and the church as a symbol for evil, right? So, when Jesus is saying, you will have authority over, and he specifies, serpents, one of the things going on there is he's saying, you are going to have victory over evil through me. Right? The ultimate snake, the symbolic serpent, Satan, is going to be defeated because of my ministry, because of my work. And all of these signs, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, give us another clue. Serpents and deadly poison and healing the sick, all of these things are things that have gone wrong, right, in our world that these signs are evident that Jesus is fixing. That he is ruling over it. Language is a barrier. Now it's no longer going to be. Demon possession is not what God wants for his world. It's casting out of here. Healing the sick. Disease. These are all things that God does not want as part of his world and his creation. So, um, 
another lesson we can learn from uh, these denominations that use snake bits uh, is that scripture can be used and abused quite easily with drastic and dire consequences. We're talking death here. Um, which again, I think, goes back to this idea of this sacred conversation and dialogue. What we, um, our approach to scripture should be one of humility. One where we are open to learning. Not uh, so quick to give a command. Right? Okay, so, we've dealt with the snakes. Snakes are out of the way here. Um, so, uh, what does this text have to say for us? Is anything lost if the scribe had not added it? My argument today is going to be yes. Mike's last week was no, so I'm going to have to um, kind of convince you guys that there's some stuff in here worth reading. So, um, we have here in verse 9 through 20, Jesus' appearances. If Mark is left at verse 8, which a lot of scholars think it is, we have no resurrection appearances. What's interesting about the first appearance is that he shows up first to Mary Magdalene. Um, this is one of the more subversive pieces of our gospel. It's pretty radical. It may not seem very radical to us today, but it was back then. Let me explain. So the fact that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women was a very embarrassing fact to the early church. They did not, it was not going to help their credibility. <coughs> for instance, if there was a reason for a woman to be called into court, they in general did not take the eyewitness testimony of a woman because they were seen as unreliable witnesses. This is just the times back then that they lived in. Okay. So Jesus showing up and purposely appearing first to the women is a very countercultural piece of our gospel. It's very subversive. Um, it shows that the gospel is for all. That it does not adhere to the social norms of our day. Right? God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, uh, has other priorities. That all are welcome at the table. Now, true to form, Mary sees Jesus and goes and tells the disciples, and they don't believe it. Can't say I really blame them. If somebody came to you saying, hey, so-and-so's not dead, he's alive. Look, man, dead is dead. Right. Um, I know you're sad, but we can understand their doubt at this point. This is not what they expect. Okay, then he shows up to the two. Again, not those in the eleven. He doesn't show up to the eleven first. They go, and again, there's a stubborn refusal to believe. Finally, he appears to the eleven. And it is only when he appears that they believe. Um, 
One last word definition for you. Anybody know what Israel means? <laughs> Good guess. Israel. So the, the story goes, you have Jacob who has a vision. And all of a sudden there is this angel that comes out and wrestles him. And he gives him a new name called Israel, which means one who has wrestled with the Lord. I think this is really interesting, that the name of God's people is one who wrestles with God. I think that gives us permission, as people who've been grafted into Israel, to continue that wrestling. I think what we see in the disciples, this doubt, this struggle to believe, even in a post-resurrection world, it doesn't seem out of place. And how often we are like them. How often it is hard to believe when we see the things happening in Paris, in Kenya, in Mali. It is a struggle to believe sometimes that Christ is risen, that he is indeed victorious. But that doesn't stop Jesus from showing up. It doesn't stop Jesus from remaining faithful. The world needs the message of the resurrection, the victory of defeat over death and evil. It is the resurrection that changes everything. Because of the resurrection, we can no longer think about the world like we used to. There are new possibilities and potential because death has been defeated. And lastly, the thing that uh, speaks out to me from this text is the very final verse. So Jesus, he is taken up to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God. And it says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. This is quite encouraging for me. And I'm very, very happy it is here has been added. This is an assurance. We are not working on our own. We are not by ourselves. God has not left us. Him being seated at the right hand of God does not mean that he is this distant overlord, but that he continues the work with us and through us. Because remember, this is part of his divine DNA. This is what he seems to like to do even though it seems a bit irresponsible to give us that much responsibility. Um, but I think, I, for one, I'm grateful that this passage has been kept in our canon. To me, it shows us that we've been given a task, that the resurrection can change hearts, and that we are not alone. So I want to close by reading this excerpt from N.T. Wright. One of my favorite um, biblical scholars, he's written a book on scripture um, that I would highly recommend, um, but he speaks about the authority of scripture, the purpose of scripture. So he says, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors. We read it to be reminded where it has come from, where it's going, 
and what our part within it ought to be. This means that the authority of Scripture is most truly put into operation as the church goes to work. In a world that uh, the good news of Jesus Christ is the living God who has defeated the powers of evil and he's begun the work of new creation. It is with the Bible in our hands, our head, and our heart that the church can go to work in the world confident that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The words are not just meant to be read. They are meant to be acted. We are given a task. We are called to preach the good news of the gospel. And we are finally given assurance that the Lord is working with us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, um, we celebrate that you have defeated death 